Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. France's President Emmanuel Macron has quite a problem on his hands. The yellow-jacketed protesters, known as Gilets Jaunes, have become a potent political force. We visit one of his town halls, where he's listening to public concerns and trying to shed his standoffish image. And have you had the smoky spirit called Mescal? It's kind of a cousin of tequila, and demand for it is growing. But a global boom would threaten to upend the time-honored traditions that set it apart. But first... Last week, Amazon scrapped plans to build a new headquarters in New York City. The company had planned to create 25,000 jobs and spend $2.5 billion to set up shop. To sweeten the deal, the city had offered $3 billion in subsidies. But the company says that hostility from local politicians stopped the project going forward. New York City Councilman Jimmy Van Bramer argued that Amazon is anti-union and anti-immigrant. If we believe in the rights of working people to organize, even if you stand to financially benefit from the deal, you should oppose it. Polls showed that 70% of New Yorkers supported the move. Why did the deal go south, and what happens now? To find out, I'm joined by Rosemary Ward, one of our correspondents in New York. 25,000 jobs um, sounds like something any city would want to, 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 to bring in. Why has there been such a backlash? What, what were people worried about? There was a small and vocal backlash. The majority of New Yorkers actually wanted the Amazon deal. Their issues with the, the deal were, why are we giving $3 billion to the richest company in the world, which is headed by one of the richest men in the world? It didn't make sense in their mind. They have a point because there's been studies galore showing that corporate giveaways and corporate welfare Um, can be redundant. One study found that incentives have no discernible impact on firm expansion, and often companies don't hold up their end of the deal, as we just saw in Wisconsin and Foxconn. So I I understand why they were upset, but 25,000 jobs and the multiplier effect would have been extraordinary. Did New York lose out here or not? Or did it dodge a bullet? I definitely don't think that. I mean, we're talking about jobs for generations. The people there and their children could have had jobs, not necessarily in Amazon, but perhaps in the nail salon that would have opened. Maybe they were going to be lawyers who represented the company. Well, it seems that everyone is, is, is sort of piling on to Amazon about, about this, from, from Donald Trump to uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Is, is this just kind of another aspect of the ongoing backlash against big tech? There was something kind of unsavory about having a countrywide municipal beauty pageant. Every state and city practically would have done anything to have Amazon come to their town, including changing their name. Nearby Newark, 
um, offered $7 billion worth of incentives. Right. And so what's it going to do now? Is it just going to head over to Newark and and collect an even bigger sort of golden handshake? No, you you would think it would, but it's actually just expand where it already is. The co-share of that winning bid was uh, Northern Virginia, and they're going to grow operations there and also in Nashville where they were going to expand on a smaller scale. And it's interesting, North Virginia and Nashville didn't offer anywhere near the amount of money that New York was offering Amazon. Some of the opposition to Amazon among the public and local politicians in New York was because the firm is perceived to be strongly against unions. Across the country, Amazon workers complain about low wages, poor working conditions, and 12-hour shifts. Some have been attempting to unionize. Our Midwest correspondent joined Amazon employees at a rally in Minnesota to hear their concerns. My name is Fendelin von Bredo. I'm a correspondent with The Economist. In December, I went to Minnesota to march with protesters to find out whether Amazon warehouse workers will unionize. The reason for going to Minnesota is that maybe for the first time in company history, local workers were staging a walkout. We want justice in race and equality. We want prayer areas. These were members mostly of the East African local community who walked out to demand higher pay, longer breaks, more time for their prayers. And I met a young, athletic-looking woman named yeah. Crystal. Okay. I scan it, yeah. and I put it on the robot. Who yeah. had her hand still in a cast, and she told me she had suffered a workplace injury very early during her training period at Amazon and has since with been unable to work. And she told me that they imposed an almost impossible I, I workload. Back at that time, because it hurt so much, and I just said, that, I looked at it, and I said, this is not physically possible. You yeah. know, and if you want to fire me on the basis that... I'm physically unfit. Yeah. You go right ahead. And she felt very much under pressure because she was being reprimanded for not meeting the target. And she thinks that caused her injury. So she was very critical of the company in terms of the targets they impose on their workers. And Minnesota isn't the only place that this kind of disquiet is, is occurring. No, not quite the same, but it's very similar. In Staten Island and New Jersey, the push is actually to unionize, which is something the warehouse workers in Minnesota are not trying to do at the moment, whilst the ones on the East Coast do that. And that is something I think Amazon wants to avoid at all cost. This comes amid great public scrutiny over how America's second biggest private employer treats its workers. There have been horror stories, really, about the conditions in warehouses, both in Europe and in America. There have been reports about very hot working conditions, about people fainting at work and ambulances waiting in front of the warehouses. There have been stories that people are worried to go to the bathroom during working hours and not to meet their workload. And so they would pee in a bottle. All this has been circulated quite widely and Amazon needed to respond. To it. And what does Amazon say about these kinds of accusations? Amazon is trying to be very 
open to criticism in the sense that they say they hear them, but they say, for instance, that shifts are 10 hours, not 12 hours, as some of the protesters seem to say. They say that two breaks are long enough. They say, of course, any worker can go to the bathroom whenever he or she wishes to go. And they did make allowances for the demands to pray of their Muslim workers. Well, you actually toured one of these warehouses in Illinois. What impression did you get? Yes, so the workers I talked to, and I did talk to a number of workers, whilst of course being accompanied by the media team, who seemed very happy, very enthusiastic about their work. Number one thing that I loved about it was that they do notice hard work right away. And they told me that they volunteer for overtime and they say 10 hours a day, four days a week is absolutely manageable and they did not seem unhappy with the workload. But then again, of course, this was a sort of official company tour that I was on. So what, what actions have the workers actually been taking in the direction of, of unionizing? So the Amazon warehouse workers on the East Coast very much are planning to unionize. They are hoping that a big union will take them on. And they are dangling that prospect in order to make their demands heard. And in turn, what is Amazon doing about these efforts? Amazon is terrified of unionization. So they are training their managers to pick up signs of potential you know, workers' activism. And in fact, there was a training video for Amazon managers that was leaked online. Welcome. We're excited to have you at this training. That was doing exactly that. It is critical that we recognize the early warning signs of potential organizing and escalate concerns promptly. To train managers how to spot the first signs of a possible rebellion. The most obvious signs would include use of words associated with unions or union-led movements like living wage or steward. They're supposed to pick up on certain terms and then to alert headquarters in Seattle to, you know, that's something that might so be going on. to quash the rebellion. To quash the rebellion in as gentle a way as possible. But absolutely, I think they do want to avoid unionization at all costs, as Walmart, the world's biggest traditional retailer, did in the past. But the story at Amazon might be a little bit different. It's not that Amazon is less aggressive necessarily. Many big companies have learned from Walmart. But Amazon warehouse workers have more leverage than Walmart workers did. Warehouses are enormous. The one I visited was the size of 14 football fields. So different from a Walmart shop that, you know, if worse came to worse, you can simply shut down. And there are thousands of workers in one place every day. So it's relatively easy for them to organize themselves. So the workers actually do have a certain amount of leverage because they know how essential they are to the operation. But it's also simply because Amazon is very conscious of its public image, much more than Walmart ever was. Interesting, of course, is that Jeff Bezos introduced the minimum wage of $15 after Bernie Sanders introduced the Stop Bezos Act, which was actually not named after Jeff Bezos. It just happened to be an acronym that conveniently uh, coincided with the name of the boss of Amazon. So Amazon will try to be seen as a good company. And hence, as the leader of the industry is trying to be seen as a good company, other warehouses, operators of warehouses will, I suppose, try to follow. Mendelin, thank you very much. Pleasure. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. 
Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. L'acte 2 du quinquennat. Every week, France's President Emmanuel Macron faces bruising opinion polls and protests in streets across the country. Mr. Macron is attempting a comeback in the way he knows best. Merci beaucoup, Monsieur le Maire. With the force of argument and reason, he's headed out of the Elysee Palace, rolled up his sleeves, and started holding town halls across France. I think that this process is really going to determine his presidency. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. It's whether or not his reformist phase is over, or whether he can recover his authority and keep going with his plans to transform France. Sophie recently went to one of Mr. Macron's town halls south of Paris. It was a very standard municipal hall with white plastic chairs and it couldn't be further away really from the sort of gilded palace uh, where the presidency in France operates from. When he walked in, there was silence. This was absolutely not a kind of crowd of supporters. These were local mayors, they were people who run associations. The point was to answer questions. And so what did that actually look like? So he sat on his white plastic chair and uh, started to take questions from the audience. He was noting down on pieces of paper as each person spoke, I mean, really focusing on every question. After about four hours of this debate, some people started to sort of put their coats on and, and slip out, and there was one guy yawning in the corner. But Macron was absolutely undeterred, and off he went for another couple of hours. The president's marathon meetings have come as a response to one of the greatest crises of his presidency. The idea of these national debates came as a result of the Gilets Jaunes protest movement, which was originally a protest against a rise in the fuel price, but has widened out into much more broad sense of grievances against both the president and the cost of living and generally the concept of a sort of government that doesn't listen to the people. Sophie, why not meet with them directly? Why, why do this, what you describe as, as almost like a showpiece for their benefit? Protesters are very welcome to come along to these debates if that's what they want to do. But on the whole, the yellow jacket protesters do not want to negotiate, do not want to talk. I think the point for Macron is he wants to make sure that the people whose voices are heard in France is not just the gilets jaunes, and in particular those who are taking place in the violent protests, but that all the French people are, are heard. And at these town halls, is, is this just big ideas back and forth or are people kind of bringing quite granular concerns? A lot of the concerns are very detailed and very local. It's really interesting to listen to it. Every single question was answered. So Macron only left after he'd actually exhausted all the questions in the room. And many of them concerned local life. They're things like the extension of a railway line to the town or whether or not volunteers at a local sports club could in some way have a tax deduction. Le sport est un vecteur d'apprentissage de la vie sociale. These sorts of very local issues, a factory that had closed and 800 jobs were at stake. It seems that this is an opportunity for people to really raise local concerns as much as the big national ones like taxation, public services at a national level.
Monsieur le Président, Nicolas Méhari, je suis le maire de Bretigny-sur-Orge. And less taxation, and that's that's going to be the really the really difficult part. And, and what does the public think of this national group therapy as it plays out? Well, it's interesting that Macron's poll numbers, which had gone down to absolute record lows in December, have begun to creep up again. I mean, they're still pretty low, but they're up 10 points on December, which is not a bad increase. So one gets the impression that the French are interested, approve of their new listening president, but whether or not this is enough to really turn around his presidency is a, is a different question. So do you think these town halls will work to calm the national mood? It's an incredibly difficult movement to calm because even as the numbers on the streets have gone down, it's become more radicalized and more violent. And every weekend there is ongoing violence on the streets of Paris and all sorts of regional cities. That hasn't stopped. So I think the objective is to try and appeal beyond that radical hardcore to the Gilets Jaunes who felt that what they wanted above all was to be respected, to be listened to, to be heard. And in that sense, I think that this national debate could end up being positive if the government and, and the president can find some way of resolving the, the inevitable contradictions that are going to emerge because of it. Sophie, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. In the latest episode of The Economist Asks, our interview show, Cliff Sims, a former communication aide in the Trump administration. He's got a new tell-all book out, and our senior editor Anne McElvoy asked him about an evident paradox. If President Trump inspires such loyalty among his base, why is there so little of it inside the White House? I think what I learned was loyalty in Trump world is a one-way street. Uh, that he does demand it of people. He does, you know, it's kind of a buzzword that he just loves, you know, people that are going to go out and, and be loyal to him, especially publicly. But I found that he does not give loyalty, that does not extend the other direction. And the last chapter of my book is titled Disposable because I learned the one unfailing truth of Trump world, which is that if you don't share his last name, you are disposable. And I think that people get that. Uh, when they work for him. And that's why sometimes, I, you know, he perhaps does not get the loyalty that you might expect. The Economist Asks is out every Thursday. Let's finish up with a look at a shifting trend in drinks. Fifteen years ago, it was tequila that went from trashy to classy. High-end tequilas fueled parties and soaked up a lot of cash. Now, the spirit on the rise is mezcal, which is sort of like tequila, but different. So you can think of it like like wine. Tequila is like Chardonnay or whatever, one, one type of grape. And mezcal is, is wine. Mezcal's the category. And tequila is just one subset of the category. 
John Darby has a fine manicured beard and bun and runs a mezcal-focused bar and education project named Singusano in a very cool part of East London. So mezcal is much, much bigger than tequila. Uh, and the possibilities are broader, the flavors are broader. Much broader. Mezcal can be made from 28 varieties of the agave plant, but tequila from just one. And mezcaleros stick to the old, less industrialized ways. John fell in love with the stuff in Mexico, where he saw small-scale mezcal operations. Well, it's the artisanal aspect of it that makes it, that, that, that's what makes it interesting. The fact that the flavor of what you're drinking is inextricably linked from the land that it grew in. And the people that like it, really like it. We've got like a, a, a minority, a hardcore minority, if you like, that seek us out because they know we've got the best mezcal in, in, uh, in London. So what has this hipster taste for mezcal meant for Mexicans? To find out, let's talk to the Economist's correspondent in Mexico City, Richard Enzer, who has brought me a number. Richard, hello, what number have you got? Five million liters of mezcal. That is a lot of mezcal. That's how much, what, you consume in a year? Yeah, it's not all me. It's, um, it's mostly me, but it's, it's not even what they drink in Mexico. That's the global consumption of mezcal last year. And it's gone up a lot. It's five times as much as people drank back in 2011. And that's changing what used to be a tiny industry of small producers in the countryside. How so? Um, so I went to a small town in the southern Mexican state of Oaxaca called Ejutla, where they've been making mezcal for generations. And they, they plant the agaves, uh, the, these big plants. They wait for eight years for them to ripen. They, they chop off all the leaves and, and the, the hearts of the plants, which, which weigh about 50 kilos each. They, they throw them in a big fiery pit and let them burn for three days. These are the old techniques that, are, that they've been using for centuries. But what's different now is instead of selling them in plastic bottles with a, with a worm in it or just little bags, now they, they put it in snazzy, well-branded bottles of mezcal and they send them all over Mexico and all over the world to, to Berlin, to Los Angeles, to London, to all, all of the big cities where, where hipsters consume them and pay a lot of money for them. Sure thing. Um... So it, it sounds as if mezcal is, is becoming nearly as, as popular as tequila itself. Well, it's got a long way to go. Total mezcal uh, production last year was just 2% of uh, the amount of tequila that was uh, made last year. So there's still a long way to go. And the thing is, tequila can grow uh, so rapidly because it uses a lot of mechanized production techniques. They put the agaves on conveyor belts and roll them into these big electric ovens. It's all very modernized. So if mezcal wants to grow, uh, it will need to abandon a lot of these old artisanal techniques that have served them well for so long. And in fact, that have made the, the drink such a cult favorite. So it's, it's, at some point, it's going to have to choose whether it sticks to traditions or whether it goes and wants to chase global market shares. Well, thanks for that, Richard. And when the, when the hour grows right, do, do tip a, a mezcal our way, would you? I'm already on it. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.
Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organisation better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.